Hello and welcome everyone to the Persuasion Lab podcast. I'm your host, Moeed Amin. The goal for this show, as uh, those who are longtime listeners and viewers now, you will know, the goal for the show is to elevate the profession of sales and persuasion. So whether you're a sales professional, sales leader, a company founder, or someone who's not in the sales profession, but persuasion and convincing people to take action is a big part of what you do and your career progression. Well, this is the show for you. And we cover everything from not just the conventional sales uh, skills and behaviors and teachings, but you know, success is more about the person you become, not just about the skills and knowledge you acquire. So we will help you on that journey. And we've had people who are experts in body language, um, you know, behavioral psychology, personal branding, and even someone who's an expert in health to make sure that you at every engagement, at every situation, you're the best version of yourself and that you're presenting that best version of yourself. So really, really good to have you join me on the show today. Um, and one of the things I've been thinking about and discussing quite a lot of people recently is, you know, the, the collaboration between sales and marketing. You know, I believe very strongly that the future um, of successful businesses will be those that really get the connection between sales and marketing right. Now we both know because of the buyer's journey and how that is absolutely changing in such a fast way now, and what used to work even a week ago will sometimes change. That connection between sales and marketing will make sure that you're seeing everything that's happening in the buyer's journey and you are presenting the right position of yourself and your messaging and, and the attention capture in the right places on that buyer's journey. More importantly as well as what that will lead to and what we've seen with other businesses is that your cost of customer acquisition will be dramatically lower than your competitors. But getting it right is not easy. And that's why we, I've invited uh, our guest today. Now, our guest is uh, someone who has been in the B2B marketing space for over a decade now, and he has worked for and with some very well-known brands, brands like Sodexo, Henkel, uh, Chevron, Caterpillar, Logitech, uh, as well as Samsung. And uh, he is the co-founder of a company called Einblick. Um, and what he essentially does is he helps B2B companies stand out from the crowd. Um, and actually become memorable. And in a radically crowded world, the ability to do that is even more important, especially for buyers to kind of instantaneously identify someone and their brand and what they stand for. So the, the stronger your brand, theoretically, the stronger the brand of the salespeople when they're going in for some of those conversations with buyers. So I'm truly delighted to welcome our next guest on the show today. So please help me welcome Mr. Christian Klepp. Christian, uh, Christian, apologies. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Thank you, Moeed. It's uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, wow, that was a heck of an intro. So I better live up to the hype. <laughs> uh, I, and and uh, while well, I'm really confident he will, certainly from the discussions that you and I have been having, yeah. I thought you know you, you you've got such value to add to to our listeners, and uh, I think it's really important because now more than ever we're starting to see that you know. Um, salespeople kind of have to have certain appreciation or even at, at the minimum appreciation, but even marketing skills in some yes. way and vice versa. We're seeing that marketing people have to have a much better appreciation of what's going on with sales. hundred percent. They kind of need to think in that way as well. Yeah. So um, before we go into that, and that, that's a topic that's really interesting. We're mm. going to cover that today, but mm. before we go into that, 
one thing that you and I did talk about before was the fact that um, you know marketing in especially in B2B business is often overlooked yes uh, or, or at least misunderstood yes. let's let's start with that because that's really important why do you feel that's still the case yeah well first of all thanks for the opportunity and um, just to set the record straight I actually did start out my career in sales <laughs> I, I didn't start out in marketing, right? I, I actually, my first job out of university was working um, as a sales representative for a furniture import exporter in Germany, right? So right. I, I do I do understand the sales process and the sales uh, role, the role of a salesperson very well, actually. And, and also as a, you know, as a business owner, as you can attest to, um, whether we like it or not, um, New business and customer acquisition and account servicing, for that matter, does fall in, in, into our um, area of responsibility, right? But onto your question, right? And it's a, it's, a very, uh, it's a very valid one. And I think that from my experience and from what I've seen and the conversations I've had with other B2B marketers, um, there are a couple of factors involved, okay? So one of them being many traditional uh, B2B industries. So I'm just gonna like throw a few out there, steel, construction, shipping and whatnot. A lot of these have traditionally been very sales and product slash solutions driven, right? And it almost feels like um, that would be obvious and predictable, right? But it's for that reason, because it's been, it's been the business model for so many years, right? Um, and it, and it didn't change very much until, well, past couple, past couple of years, like two or three years ago. But prior to that, it was very sales and products uh, and solutions driven. And uh, the sales people and people in this function were given a bit more, I'd like to call it airtime, right? They were given more priority because they were very, in terms of their value that they added to the organization was very visible because they're bringing in the revenue, right? They're bringing in the revenue, and as a result of that, they had that, I call it the voice at the table, right? Like senior management. Whenever budgets were discussed, investment allocation and so forth, sales usually, sales and other functions of that nature, product development and so forth, they were given first dibs. Marketing did not have such a role uh, because it wasn't as visible as these functions, right? And to a certain degree, that's, that's changed, thankfully, but not everywhere. Right, so you're still you're still getting uh, marketing departments that still need to fight to justify, if I may say so, their existence. Right, and that goes on to the next factor, which is there's a general lack of education. There's a general lack of education um, among senior management and other non-marketing functions about the true value that mark the marketing function actually brings. And you know, it's going back to that old adage, right? Out of sight, out of mind. If you do not do the homework as a marketer. To help, it's not necessarily to justify your role, but to to build that rapport, to establish that relationship within the organization that helps you to increase your visibility. Then the other departments are not going to know what you're doing. It, it it sounds so simple, but yet you know, in theory, but in application, I've seen I've seen how challenging that can actually be. You've mentioned some of the companies um, that I've worked uh, or collaborated with in the past, and I and I've seen that um, in, you know in some of those organizations um, uh, play out right. Um, the other thing I would say is um, there was resistance to change and complacency. So just going back to what I was saying previously about the, you know, the sales and product driven aspect. My experience, the larger the organization is, the harder it is for them to make those, those necessary shifts, right? 
And it's going back to the whole like, yeah, but we've been doing it like this for 30 years. We've been doing it like this for 20 years. We've been doing it like this for 10 years. So why should we change it now? Or how often have I heard people at the senior management level saying, well, Christian, we've built up this business over two decades without marketing. So why should we invest market in marketing right now? And I think that's a fairly legitimate question, right? And the answer to that is because the market has changed. The market dynamics have changed. The, the, your customers have changed. The way they buy has changed. Their buying behavior has changed. And, that, and for that reason, um, it's important to invest in marketing. But again, it's, a, it's about education because you, know, you, you don't know what you don't know sometimes, right? But in a nutshell, I would say those are really um, those are really the reasons why it's overlooked because it tends to be viewed as, um, you know, they always played second fiddle. Marketing was always viewed as a support function and uh, a slash an order taking execution mechanism, right? And for as long as companies view marketing as that role, there will be no change in active. You, you talked about the fact that the, the buyers have changed, the way they buy has changed, the world has changed. Totally get that. Why is marketing the answer? Because I can see, I can see the types of business owners and leaders that you described where they talk about, you know, we've done this for two decades now. Why should we invest in marketing? I can see some of them saying, well, why shouldn't we put that money and that investment in sales, for example, or product development or somewhere else? Um, why is marketing the answer? Great question. And the answer to that is because, at least from what I've seen in my experience, the product will not sell itself, right? <laughs> Unless, yeah. you've got, unless you've got this like steady pool of clients, right? With, with repeat business. And if that might be the case in some organizations, but look at what happened in the pandemic. Cl companies that have had clients for years suddenly canceled their contracts. Or if they didn't cancel their contracts, they reduced the spend. They reduced the budgets, right? I, and I know it really depends on which industry vertical you're referring to, because in B2B, as you probably know it can get very specialized and it's very niche where they say okay but we only have two competitors right but let's just use the example of steel or construction the competition is is, is extreme it's very intense right or, or even tech let's let's look at tech it's an extremely crowded market where a lot of companies are using this me too positioning and if you go if you go down into the nuts and bolts i mean just take a look at their websites right everybody is generally saying the same thing right um, I mean, the next tech company that that uses were innovative in their <clears throat> in their messaging. I mean, like seriously, you cannot not be in tech, right? Or you cannot be in tech and, and be, not be innovative. Let's put it that way. So what I'm trying to say is that there's so much sameness out there. There's so much me too positioning. Competition has become intense because the the buying behavior and the buyer's journeys have changed which may also mean that the selection criteria might be a little bit more stringent now. So it begs the question, okay, under these circumstances, how are you as the service provider, as the vendor, how are you going to stand out and make this buying committee that we know exists in B2B, right? Because it's, it's, it's usually a buying group. How are you going to make them choose you over the competition? And that at times cannot be achieved by sales alone. That needs to be done through efforts where, especially if the buyer or the potential client doesn't know who you are and doesn't know you exist, how do you build, begin to build that trust, continue to build that relationship, position yourself as a 
credible source and industry authority and expert, right? And that will come through efforts that are in large part initiated by marketing. Yeah. And that makes sense because you, you kind of partially answered the question I was going to ask you next, which is, mm. well, maybe sales can do that. But you, you've given some examples as to why sales can't do that alone. Let's dig into that a bit, a little bit, sure. because I want to I want to help our viewers and listeners understand. Absolutely. What does what does good marketing do that is complementary and in addition to what sales can't do, but it helps elevate them and the work that they do. So Absolutely. I guess just could we give some examples as to yes. what good marketing looks like? What do they do that, quite frankly, sales can't do? but yeah. marketing should be able to do to help them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if I may use this like super simple example, but this might be the best way to explain it. In the past, and, and I know we we're gonna talk about these misconceptions later on, but let me, let me just throw one out there right now. One of these misconceptions um, that we had in the past was that salespeople were just going out there and saying, well, you, you have to buy this vacuum cleaner because it's the best vacuum cleaner and it's state of the art and it, it you know it cleans your it cleans your house like nothing else and and that's the end of it right but we know that in b2b it's not such a straightforward process is it most of the time and at least the clients that i've dealt with they're not dealing with one point of contact on the client side they're dealing with at least four to six people that are part of a buying committee as i said before different functions right of the buying committee that have to go through these Quite, it's a relatively complex and non-linear, let me say that again, a non-linear buying process, right? Where they are trying to get verification from various sources. A big part of that now is online, right? And what do I mean by that? They need to be sure that you are the right choice for what they require as a service provider. So what does that mean, right? To answer your question, they're trying to search online for any kind of content or material that will reassure them that provider A is the one that they will choose ultimately, right? To use or to work with. And what content are they looking for? They're, they're, looking, they're looking for material that will talk, speak to your credibility and your expertise as a said service provider in the niche. And that requires looking as, at, at um, things as eBooks, white papers, articles, um, podcast interviews, maybe even webinars to a certain extent. So I'm not saying that salespeople can't write, but they generally they generally are probably going to would rather spend their time talking to the customers, trying to close those deals. And that's the reason why they need marketing support, right? And, and also look, and it's also for uh, to provide content that is relevant to the buyer. And we're going to get into that later on about the misconceptions and some of the mistakes, right? Because you, you do see some marketers making that mistake of, you know, churning out content that, that, that is not useful for the, the target audience and that the salespeople can't use to sell, right? Because it's not relevant, right? But that's a, that's a discussion for uh, later on in the conversation. So if I'm understanding correctly, what you're mm. saying is the buying journey is definitely not linear, which, which we know, and there's a lot of research out there it's become more complex. Um, there's committees involved, which obviously yes. creates groupthink where people, yes. you know, search for decisions that are contrary to maybe what the purpose would be. They're kind of yep. looking more for conformity and yep. kind of, and, and that's the whole groupthink situation, which is a problem. Yes. And, but what you're saying there is um, in order to create a, a, an, 
uh, let's call it a conducive environment for when salespeople enter those meetings. Right. Um, right. And when buyers search for all that information, and we've seen we've seen the research out there about how much they kind of search for themselves before they actually speak to any vendor or any salesperson. Yeah. Yeah. You're basically saying that you know salespeople can't do that and shouldn't do that. In fact, that yeah. should be marketing that creates that. Um, I want to talk about the misconceptions, but before I do that, there mm. is one burning question that I have in mind, which Please. is, I would love to get your thoughts on the emotions involved in the buying journey, because marketing, certainly in B2C, seem to be very adept at tapping, understanding and tapping into the emotions that the buyer is facing, um, more so than, say, the logical. Now, there is a misconception still out there that uh, logical business value is mm -hmm. still the most important thing when it comes to B2B research. But actually, that's not true um, because we know this from science and we know this from research. Emotions are front and center in the decision-making process. In fact, they're front and center in the, the four areas of the brain that are involved in goal setting and goal right. achievement. Right. Um, so, so talk to me about how marketing in B2B leverage emotions and try to understand that or maybe you say that they probably don't and actually that's one of the things that is lacking uh, that should be addressed but i'd love to hear your thoughts on this yeah yeah no it's a it's a it's a really great point it's something i've seen time and time again um in my own career um and also interacting with clients um i would say there is emotion in b2b it's just it plays out differently um you know as compared to b2c so what, what do i mean by that I think it's really important for the B2B marketer to get into the, if I may say so, the psyche of the B2B buyer. And uh, I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say, uh, sorry, buyers, plural, right? Because it's, 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 it's a group of people, right? And what do I mean by that? And because, you know, unlike B2C, I mean, like, you know, you go to the grocery store and you buy a, you buy a can of soda. It's, it's different when you're trying to sell like, um, you know, computer software to the, uh, to the aerospace industry, for example, right? So what do I, what, what am I trying to say here when you get into the psyche? Think, they need to think about what it is that is keeping these people up at night. Like what are, what are the challenges that they are facing? What are their pain points? And using that design thinking uh, approach, suppose that were no longer a problem. How would that help you, you know, in your job? And also it's important to understand what the role of each of these B2B buyers are within the organization and what they are mandated to do. What, what are their objectives for the year? And how can you, as a service provider with your products and services, how can you help them get closer to their goal? Because at the end of the day, let's face it, um, human beings tend to be selfish people, right? So that's why you, you have to answer, marketers need to answer this question when they roll out initiatives with every little piece of content they write or put out there. What's in it for me? Right? What's in it for me for the for, um, referring to the target audience, of course, right? Mm. Because the mistake, and you know, going back to what you were saying earlier, the mistake that I've been uh, that I've seen some marketers make is that they just go on and on and on and on about their company's products and services. They focus on the technology, they focus on the features, and they focus on the different aspects of it, and or that it's proprietary, or that they're ISO nine thousand uh, certified, and all. But the customer doesn't really care about that. The customer cares about how can you help me solve my problem? 
And that's where the emotional aspect of it comes in, right? That's where the urgency comes in. Although we know, we know that the buying process takes, can take several months. I'm not even talking about weeks. It can take months. It can take a year. There is that, there is that aspect of it. That's, uh, you know, that, that has urgency, right? And that's something that B2B marketers need to understand. And this is why I highly encourage, and even my, my teams previously, I highly encourage them to sit in on customer calls, on discovery calls, or do what I used to do is just go out into the field with the sales and sit in a customer meeting so you can actually hear what the customer is saying, what they are not, not complaining about, but what, what, they're, what they're saying are their challenges, right? And what their questions of the salespeople are, what their objections are. So I think that aspect of it is really important for B2B marketers to grasp. Why don't they do that? Because um, my view is that marketing, just like sales, yeah. um, both of them are supposed to be championing the perspective and the desires of the customer in the business. If, if, there, is, if there is one function, um, or if there's two functions in this case, in yeah. a company, in any company, mm -hmm. quite mm -hmm. frankly, that is supposed to champion the, the desires and the perspective of the buyers, it should be the marketing and the salespeople because they are the ones that are at the sharpest end of where that company meets the buyers in the community. So it still surprises me as to why I've, I've observed personally, and yeah. I may be wrong here, a lot mm. of marketing teams and individuals don't take the initiative to join those sales calls and sales meetings. Why do you think that is? It's not such a straightforward answer, I'm afraid. Um, I think from what I've seen, it really depends on uh, several factors. Right. I, I have the same concern as you, by the way. I, I, I'm totally with you. They should be doing that. Absolutely. Right. But I think a part of it is really because they feel that it's not within their scope of work, which mm. which can be traced back to what I was saying at the beginning of the conversation, the way that the organization is structured and the culture, because perhaps in that organization, marketing is not expected to interface with sales. And I've been in situations, even in larger organizations, where the salespeople don't want marketing to interact with, mm. with the customers. Confidentiality seems to be the first reason that comes to mind. I think the other one is really just, um, they just don't want the, the marketers to have a conversation with the customers to find out what, what can be improved, for example. But the mm. problem is like, if you, never, if you can never have that conversation that, that, um, that needs to be had, in my opinion, about what needs, what needs to be improved, then nothing will move forward. Right. But it, it goes back to scope of work. It goes back to culture. It goes back to mindset. And it goes back to um, just this lack of experience of actually interfacing with customers. Because I've seen that too. I've seen, I've seen marketers that don't know how to conduct an interview with customers. And, uh, and what I mean by that is like ask them, quest ask them the right questions that will help to generate those necessary insights to identify. Um, opportunities and gaps. I've seen mm -hmm. that too. And actually, yeah. um, you know, and, and a quick way that I've observed around this, I'd love to get your thoughts on this is, yeah. you know, if, if, the, if the marketing person doesn't have the confidence or the skill set, well, maybe, you know, they can ask the salesperson, here are the types of, here are the types of things we want to find out from Absolutely. the customer. Absolutely. How about, how about you ask those questions because you have the relationship and that way you almost make the salesperson feel empowered as well but you are also getting the results that you desire. So rather than the longer term approach of training marketing people to have that kind of customer facing kind of confidence and skill set, 
they can at least help the salesperson ask those right questions and they're just observing during the call. Let's let's talk describe a time the times when you've seen that yeah. partnership and collaboration work out beautifully. And oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Thank thank you. Um yes, absolutely. Um <clears throat> so it was going back to uh the conversation um that I was telling you about in, um in our uh, you know, in our previous call, and it was an experience that I had personally when I was uh, working as a product manager for Sodexo um, in the China market. And I was responsible for a product which they called in benefits and incentive solutions, right? And just to give a bit of background, I was part of a team that was brought on by the general manager as a, you know, like a member of the new marketing team. And we were, we were mandated to help yeah, to, sum to summarize the objective was to turn the ship around, which I suppose in layman's terms means make it profitable. That that was quite quite a feat because we were you know we were brought into um, we were brought into a company and a business that had been operating a certain way in that specific market for many years, um, where there were also colleagues that had been there for quite a long time and they had they were very set in their ways and the way that they worked right. So there were a few barriers there, but so how did we? How do we turn what seemed like a, a, a massive roadblock into an opportunity? So we, we, we did a couple of things. We, we broke down the silos by using a more collaborative approach with the sales teams. And what one thing that we did was we, we actually did um, exactly what most people don't expect marketing to do. We actually went out into the field with the salespeople. In fact, I was given, I was given the task by the GM to go out and sell. Right. And it was just to prove a point to the salespeople, right? Because at that stage when we had entered, um, the sales were not performing very well. Um, and a part of that reason was because they were they were using the same approach for the same target segments over and over and over. Right. And this there, there wasn't any um particular customer segmentation that was done. And it, it seems like they were just approaching um customers or prospects randomly, right? So that was that was one big part of the problem. So what we did was we went out, we we started, and and, and it was a bit of a it, it was a bit of a journey because we you know we spent several months just going out into the field and observing. We went out into the field and had the conversations with the customers. We recorded the sales meetings. We listened to what the customers were saying, the questions that they were asking, and we also we we didn't just listen to what the uh, the customers were asking. We were listening to how the sales were answering the questions. And then, and then came the, the, the objections. And we, we noticed the pattern in terms of the objections. So one of them obviously was pricing. And then we listened to how the salesman addressed the objections, right? And this wasn't necessarily to assign blame. We were trying to identify by doing this. We were trying to identify gaps and patterns. Where were we not getting any sales and why? And after a certain period of time, okay, this industry segment, we didn't have any sales in the past six months. Cut. The clients tended to ask these these same, generally same five or six standard questions, and the salespeople all had different answers to them. We came up with a document. Headquarters like to call it barriers to entry, but I feel that that's a little bit negative because they used the, they they said it's an argumentation sheet, and I don't want to say it's an argumentation. It's how do you address these questions? So it's a Q and A sheet essentially, right? So we came up with a standard Q and A sheet. We came up with a standard, um, how do you address objections sheet, right? So for example, the pricing uh, uh, objection, right? Like, oh, your, your, your product is too expensive. What are the five or six things that you could say 
that would get the client or the prospect closer to a yes instead of like, no, go away. <laughs> we also noticed that a lot of the salespeople went into these meetings unprepared, um, which means they didn't really know anything about the company. They didn't know who they were talking to. They didn't have it set up. So what we, what we came up with was a checklist, essentially, right? So your to-do list before the meeting, your to-do list during the meeting, and your to-do list after the meeting, right? So the follow-up, because previously the follow-up is they'd send a PPT, right? And that was, that was the follow-up, right? But some of these, I mean, like, you know, we're talking about, we're talking about some pretty big contracts here, right? So, you know, you've got to, there, there's got to be a bit of a nurturing sequence there too, right? So we, we worked together with them to, you know, to identify what that nurturing sequence could be. Another thing that we did was also, we were always collaborating with the sales team whenever we came up with a campaign, whenever we came up with sales materials. We weren't like going back into our studio and then just churning something out. We would get them involved. The heads of sales, the, the mid-level managers, the supervisors, right? Because at the end of the day, they're the ones that are going to be using this. When we came up with campaigns, we got their input. We did the brainstorming sessions together because what they needed to do after that, we, well, we implemented the campaign, but they had to go and warm up the market. It helped to get them involved early on in the piece rather than like a week before the campaign launch, we brief everybody and then, and then the objections start flying around the meeting room. By using that approach, we noticed a significant change, not just in the attitude towards marketing, but actually when they went for client meetings, they'd ask us to come along. Another thing that we did, and, and this, this required quite a bit of work because um, we, we, we changed the way that they approach um, client meetings by showing them the data, like the historical data and telling them, okay, so this is what, what happened in the past. This is where we need to get to. And this is how we think you can do it. Let's have a discussion. What are your thoughts, right? So once we rolled out the campaign, we would have weekly meetings to monitor the progress. And every time they had meetings with their teams to go out into the field, the marketing team would sit in on those meetings, right? And they would ask for our opinions. That way, it, there, there, was, there was no longer, thankfully, this clear divide between, okay, well, this is, this is our job, so you guys stay out of it, right? So we got rid of all of that and used this collaborative approach instead. And they understood that we were there, we were there to help them and there to support them. The long story short of that was that, you know, besides it being the, a great collaboration between uh, marketing and, uh, you know, the sales teams, but after, after about a year of working that way, they actually, with one campaign, one sales guy brought in a multi-million dollar contract. And with that, with that contract, they managed to not just hit their sales quota, but they exceeded the sales quota for the first time in a long time, right? And, and, and a big part of that was also largely due to their own efforts. But I would like to say that a, a portion of that was also attributed to the collaborative effort that we, you know, we had with them. That, that was hugely interesting what you described there. Mm. I would imagine that, well, what, what resistance did you get at the beginning? Because I would imagine it wasn't smooth sailing from, from the start. And it was, it was a journey, as you, as you stated earlier. Absolutely. What, 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 what resistance did you get from sales or maybe even from marketing themselves as well? And, and how did you overcome them? The resistance that we got from sales at the beginning, especially from the more senior people, was that they saw us, um, you know, back to what I was saying in the beginning, they saw us as a support mechanism, right? Hmm. You are here to print out my brochures and to my, make my PPT presentation look pretty, and I don't need your opinion about anything else. So it was, it was a little bit of a, you know, 
banging heads because we were trying to we were trying to show that their current approach wasn't working but we didn't want to like show it just to make them look bad we wanted to we wanted to show them to help them find a different approach so it it got to the point where all their efforts they still weren't able to hit their hit their goals and when we offered a different approach they 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 slowly started to listen now our our new approach didn't equate to success overnight i, I mean as i told you it, it it took several months it took a year and it took a year of them understanding that we are here to help them and not fight against them but in the beginning it was um they they were um you know for lack of a better description they were a little bit territorial they were like stay away from my guys stay away from my team and uh you know i i i only need this 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 and that's it right and even even in the beginning when we were talking to the sales directors right about like okay well what are what are some of the issues that you're facing right now what are some of the challenges and how how can we help you and they already had a list <laughs> yeah when we started out they had a list of what they called the 11 barriers the 11 barriers uh, and and what we as the marketing team took away from those 11 barriers were 11 excuses why they couldn't sell the product they were they were in a way impediments but they weren't like it, it wasn't like absolutely impossible it's just that this was this was these were the 11 reasons that they had used to condition their team not to approach certain segments and it took a little bit of i would say reprogramming and training to get them to realize that yes you had these 11 barriers in the past, but if you switch your approach and you go after different verticals, maybe you can slowly start eliminating these barriers from the list. How did you convince them, Christian? Because that, that's the part that I'm interested in. Yeah. Because if they were resistant to that, you, you kind of, and they obviously got resistance based upon territories and ego. Now you're almost telling them, hang on, um, you know, you're going after the wrong verticals now. You need yeah. to go after this one. I can understand, I can imagine how that conversation would go. So how did you kind of slowly turn them around? It wasn't an easy journey, right? Um, let me tell you. And I think it's going back to what I, uh, what I, the, the little anecdote I had earlier on in the conversation where the GM actually gave me this task of going out to sell just to prove a point. The point was, okay, so for, I'll give you an example, which is a little bit more specific. Interestingly enough, one of the verticals that they were not going after are the multinationals that were already Sodexo clients. Because um, for those of you out there who are not familiar with Sodexo's business, they actually have a few businesses, right? So there's, there's, the, there's the food and catering service, but that's specifically for facilities and factories and schools and whatnot, right? Less, uh, to a lesser degree in North America, but in Europe, especially in France and whatnot, like all the schools are, you know, that's also that Sodexo catering. Then there's the remote sites. So they have all that, all those services for like, uh, mining sites and whatnot. And then there's a third part, which they call the, um, the employee benefit solutions. And that was our, that was our category. It comes in different forms, um, across different markets. So in some it's, some it's vouchers and some it's carts, but we went after the multinationals that were already using the canteen and catering services, for example. So I went with the GM. So he kind of, he, he, he arranged the meeting, but then he basically said, okay, off you go, right? So I went in there to sell, to sell the solution to them. And it, it, it went back and forth, but um, I managed to close a $40,000 contract. And unfortunately it was a little bit of a, yeah, I don't wanna say po political, but he basically used that to make a point. 
right? So once I closed that deal, he took that contract and went to the sales team and said, you see, the marketing guy closed a $40,000 contract. So what are you guys doing, right? And it was this vertical that we told you guys to go after. And you said you can't because of whatever reason. So he did it. So now you're out of excuses, right? So off you go. There was a little bit of restructuring within the sales team that had to be done after that. And there was one division that was responsible for new business. And one of their mandates was really to like target um, multinationals. And the other ones, the, the, there was another division that was specifically like, um, you know, assigned to go after um, uh, Chinese state owned companies, which in the end um, tended to be our biggest customer simply because of the way that they operate, right? This was a great solution for them because um, the state owned companies generally don't uh, give out uh, very high salaries but they're full of incentives, right? Full of incentives and benefits and insurance and all, all, all of those things, right? So that, 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 that solution that we provided was, was great for them, for example. Yeah, I hope I answered your question there, but that's, that's one thing that we did to help close that, bridge that gap. That's, that's interesting that you mentioned that. There's, there's a ton of stuff that I've, I've taken away from this mm -hmm. in terms of how, how marketing and sales can really work together. In fact, it's, it's really about helping each other helping each other see how they can benefit each other right i mean I, I can't think of another way of describing it absolutely um absolutely uh, you know there is there is there are some things that marketing can do that sales don't have the time or the knowledge or the expertise to do and vice versa there's access yeah. to the buyers um and in insights from the salespeople that you know marketing won't be able to get all the time so so that and together, they should be a much, much more powerful force. So, so that's interesting. I, one thing we didn't talk about, and, and mm -hmm. I, I mean, I, we could talk about this for hours, but one yeah. thing we didn't talk about was the uh, the KPIs um, and the metrics. Yeah. Now, I feel very strongly about how bad MQLs are, right? I, I don't think, I think they should be an indicator, but I absolutely don't think that they should be a target KPI uh, that that translates into quality of work. What are your thoughts around the KPIs that marketing should have? And more importantly, uh, the shared KPIs that marketing would have with sales? It's a, it's a great question. And it's, uh, it's one of these, like, um, I wouldn't go as far as to say it's a controversial topic, but it's hotly debated right, on, on platforms like LinkedIn, for example. Um, I'm with you with regards to the MQLs. I actually would put more... Um, uh, precedents on SQLs. And, and why, why, why do I say that? Because like, look, at the end of the day, we all know this, all right? We've seen this. If somebody downloads an ebook that does not equate he's interested, he or she is interested to buy, that just simply means they downloaded something, right? It's going to be a long time before they actually do have intent to buy. And we all know that in, in, uh, in most B in cases in B2B, 98% of people that are online looking at your stuff are not are not ready to buy at this point in time. So what is really important for marketers to understand is that, the, and sales for that matter, is there is a bit of a nurturing sequence involved there. And that's where both sides can help each other, right? Marketing with putting out the right content, putting out the right campaigns and using that right approach, monitoring the activity that's online and sales with collaborating with marketing to identify who are the right, which ones are the right leads, which ones should they focus on and which ones should they focus on nurturing together? So, you know, in answer to your question, I, I certainly think that there should be more of a precedence for uh, SQLs. 
Now, how to share the KPI and how marketing should be measured on its success. I would say that it probably doesn't make sense to give them exactly the same KPIs as sales. And, and uh, for the simple reason that um, it marketing does function differently, right? As a discipline, right? So it's not always about, uh, it's not always about, well, how many deals did you manage to close as a result of launching that podcast? I mean, that, that, that's going to be quite a, uh, quite a jump, right? But what, what we can, what we can say, or what I, I at least could say from my experience is you can, you can measure marketing in terms of like the number of qualified leads that they help to generate for sales and the number of relationships they help to build. Because I think this is one thing that where marketing can truly shine and add value to an organization is built is, is um, scaling that relationship building uh, function of it. Because as we know, um, in, in many scenarios in B2B, <clears throat> people will, and you've heard this a hundred times over, people will, uh, people will buy from people that they know, like, and trust. And that component um, in that whole process is something where marketing can truly like, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, make a, make a significant contribution. That's really interesting. Actually, one of the mm -hmm. things you said in there that was so, so interesting was that mm -hmm. identifying where someone is on that buying journey. And right. I think you said 98% of those that mm -hmm. download content and view content, they're not ready to buy. Actually, yeah. they're just educating themselves. They're kind right. of interested in the information. Yeah. And, and th what I drew from that is, um, just because someone downloaded doesn't mean you throw those contact details over to sales who then oh. just try to hound them. Actually, you kind of need to take a step back and identify and say and talk to salespeople together and say, well, you know, could we could we understand anything about this person on the buying journey? Yes. Um, you know, if they are in nurture stage, how can we both nurture them in the right way that yeah. actually endears them to us and, right. and probably goes through the discovery phase a lot faster yeah. um, to then into active purchase mode. So I thought that was very interesting. And there's a whole heap of questions I would love to ask around that. Maybe that should be something we do on, a, on another discussion for sure. Um, Absolutely. This has been very, very interesting, Christian. I, I have a question that I ask yeah. to, to all, all my uh, guests that join us is, which three books or experts would you mm -hmm. recommend that our followers and view, well, our, our listeners and viewers either buy or, or, or follow? I've got four here, but yeah, three. Um, so one is a uh, one is a book that I've read twice now. It's called Creative Confidence, right? And it's written by Tom and David Kelly, right? So they're the founders of um, Ideo, and that tends to be more. I know it tends to be more uh, relevant, probably to uh, the marketing function. But look, at the end of the day, creativity manifests itself across different disciplines, right? You still need to be creative when you're in sales, right? if these past two years have taught us anything is that we need to be creative and innovative, right? Like, you know, some of these clients that I've worked with in these traditional B2B industries, if they could no longer go to trade shows or visit the clients at the shipyard and still have to make sales, well, how are they going to reach out to these people digitally? Right. Yeah. I would argue that that still requires creativity. Right. Um, so that's, that's book number one. Book number two is um, well, it's a book called why we buy by Paco Underhill. You've probably read that one. And I know it's, I, I know that it's very retail heavy. There's a lot about like, you know. That's an old book, right? In the nineties. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I've got, I've got a copy of that. Yeah. 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 yeah it's so a great it's book. Like, a, like the shopping mall experience and what have you. There's a third book, um, which I, which I've just recently finished reading called how to get a meeting with anyone. Right. 
And that's by a guy um, who's become a good friend of mine called Stu Heinecke. As the, name, as the title of the book suggests, I mean, this is so relevant for salespeople because it teaches you how you can get in the door with your, you know, with these prospective clients in a way that is creative, in a way that makes you stand out, in a way that's not intrusive and aggressive and salesy, right? So, I mean, and, and, and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not getting any commission, you know, of promoting the book, but if you, if, if you're so inclined, um, do get yourself a copy of the book. It's a fun read. It's a fun read, but it's also very practical because he, he provides um, heaps of actionable tips. Fourth one um, is by a Canadian called Ron Tight, and it's called Think, Do, Say. And I had the pleasure of uh, seeing Ron Tight, um, you know, present um, at a, uh, it was a marketing event in 2019 here in downtown Toronto. And um, there were 500 people in the room. And when he was up on stage, I mean, he had everybody glued and they were roaring. And, you know, it was just like, because uh, he's, he's an absolutely funny guy. And that humor, that personality of his comes across in this book. And the book, as the name suggests, is really about how to seize attention and build trust in a busy world, which I think could be highly relevant to both marketing and salespeople. Yeah, well, look, I, I've really enjoyed our conversation today. I, I've learned quite a lot, and, and I'm sure our, our viewers and listeners have too. How can, how can our viewers and listeners um, find you, learn more about you, connect with you? Well, first of all, uh, thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, you can reach out to me. I think the best place is LinkedIn. Um, so my handle is Christian-Klepp-Einblick um, Consulting. So Klepp is K-L-E-P-P. And then Einblick is E-I-N-B-L-I-C-K. And then Consulting. You can check out our website at www.einblick.co and uh, tune into our podcast, uh, B2B Marketers on a Mission, if you can, uh, wherever you get your podcasts. We'll leave those three links in the, in the show notes so that people can easily access them. Um, but Christian, thank you very much for joining us and for freely sharing you know, your, your views, your analysis and your expertise uh, and really helping our viewers understand both the sales and marketing side and how those two can, can connect together. So thank you very much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you, my pleasure. Great, and, and so this is Moe Damin uh, signing out. And <clears throat> as I say all the time, you know, I believe that um, company founders, sales leaders, um, sales professionals, uh, you know, we, you all deserve uh, revenue growth certainty. And one of the best ways to do that is through science-backed uh, research and analysis to actually peel away and uncover some of the common misconceptions out there around sales and realize how much it's harming your sales approach and what are the right approaches to take. And there's no better way to do that than to understand the buyers and how and why they make the decisions they do and work backwards from that. So if you're interested in the, such a science-backed approach and really kind of delivering revenue growth certainty, do make sure to contact me, link down below, inquiries at proverbialdoor.com. But until the next episode, thank you everyone for joining us in, in the journey. Don't forget to like, share, and certainly subscribe, and especially share this with anyone that you feel would really get value from the content that we're sharing here. So until then, thank you very much.